Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Would you join me in Joshua chapter 7 this morning? Joshua chapter number 7. We continue in our study of the book of Joshua, and I ask that you bear with me today uh, in a um, what I would call a, a little bit of a, a heavier message than where we've been the last few weeks. There's a language used in the sports world that describes a game of lesser significance which follows an important game. It's often referred to as a letdown game. A letdown is kind of like a trap game, but it's, it's different than that because a trap game is a game that you look beyond to a bigger game, but a letdown game is when, when a big game is played, when the team wins and they're so emotionally spent by that win, whether it was against a rival or one of the best teams in whatever league, that they go to the next game and they're just not Ready. They come out in what sports fans call, they come out flat. It's a game uh, to play a game and to look so good at the game before, but then to not prepare as hard for what is viewed as a lesser opponent. You may have this in your job, following the conclusion of a successful presentation or project. You may, the next day, be lacking energy. Because what was now successful is behind you. Uh, pastors have this on often the Sunday after Easter, for example. Because Easter is so awesome that the Sunday after can never match it. Uh, I would encourage you to come the Sunday after Easter so that the next Sunday can be awesome too. But the letdown here in Joshua 7 is on full display. It's an infamous letdown. And it's signaled in the very first word of the chapter. The people of Israel have just had an incredible moment. It's been an incredible moment after incredible moment after incredible moment for six chapters. From God's promise to Joshua in chapter 1, to Rahab's hiding the spies in chapter 2, to chapters 3 and 4 dealing with the crossing of the Jordan River, Chapter 5, observing the Passover for the first time. And then chapter 6, the defeat of Jericho. It's like living for the people of Israel on a mountaintop for several weeks as God gives victory after victory, blessing after blessing. But then it all appears to come crashing down after the battle of Jericho. Actually, it crashes at the end of Jericho. It crashes... But it's made visible at a place called Ai. The Battle of Ai. People argue about how to say this word, but it's just two words with two, it's one word with two letters. And so I have no idea how to pronounce it other than Ai. It's funny because people actually argue about this. Um, after a very positive six chapters, we get into a rather serious and pointed 
seventh chapter. And because of time, we'll separate this into a couple weeks. And so you might know what fleshes out here and what plays out in the chapter. But I want to ask you not to jump ahead because really what we need to see in these first five chapters are very important to our spiritual life. They're very important to our soul. Before we dive in, I want you to notice that there's an intentional comparison, though, that I would encourage you to study out on your own. There's an intentional comparison between chapter 2 with the spies in Jericho and chapter 7 and what happens at Ai. So look with me. We're going to jump right into the outline. Look at the first verse and to this point, number one, the unfaithful trespass of Israel. The unfaithful trespass of Israel. Look at verse 1. I told you the first word signals a transition. But all that happened in chapter 6, Jericho crashing down, Rahab saved, but the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. The children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. Now here it is. It's the key that unlocks everything that's going to happen in chapter 7. Everything that goes wrong, goes wrong right here. There was some stuff in Jericho that was referred to as the accursed thing. I pointed this out to you in chapter 6. Look back at verse chapter 6, look at verse 18. And for time I won't look at all that, but 17 to 19 speaks of that. In verse 18, and ye in any wise keep yourself from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Isn't it just like the human heart? Joshua gives them one negative command. One, don't do this. And this one restricted thing is what is done. It's like the child who's told not to touch cookies. I mean, they can do anything else in the house at that moment. Don't touch the cookies. And what do they do? They touch the cookies. Or should I say, I touch the cookies. I was trying to blame the kids, but it's me. Verse 1 tells us that Israel committed a trespass. The Hebrew word here for this committing a trespass, it, it actually means that the children of Israel acted unfaithfully. They acted unfaithfully. The people of Israel acted in covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, we need to remember what we learned about this accursed thing two messages ago. And that is that this thing was not bad. It wasn't bad. But it was specifically devoted to God. It wasn't accursed as it was sinful, but it had been set apart for God. And so therefore it was not for Israel to mess with, to make their own. It belongs to God, and therefore was a curse for Israel to take it. It's similar to, if you will, when Israel here acts unfaithfully, they commit this, they commit this trespass. It's a relational betrayal of trust. Israel betrayed God's trust in this moment of unfaithfulness. And we need to understand, everything in chapter 7 is God's trust in Israel has been betrayed. But keep going here. Look at verse 1 continually. This is the next part. For Achan, 
the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Here we're introduced to a man who receives an introduction unlike any other in the book of Joshua. We get four generations from this guy. His name's Achan. He's a man of the tribe of Judah. His father is Carmi, and his grandfather is Zabdi, and his great-grandfather is Zerah. Zerah had a twin brother named Pharaz. These are boys of the these are the twin boys of Judah, who was the son of Jacob. These boys came out of a relationship that, no, no better way to say it than it was a, a child of whoredom that Judah had with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, in Genesis chapter 38. Notice, verse thir- notice Genesis 38 really quickly. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. It's from this family line that Achan comes. Achan's name means troubler, troubler. First Chronicles, he is called Achar. Look at First Chronicles 2, verse 7. And the sons of Carmi, Achar, who is Achan, the troubler he is referred to of Israel, who transgressed in the thing accursed. What appears to happen is that Achan, at some point of the battle, Jericho takes of the accursing. We don't get how it happens. We get a little bit next week. But this man, Achan, is the troubler who's been unfaithful to the covenant, betrayed God. As I keep mentioning, trust has been broken. Now, the truth is, this happened many times in the wilderness, but it's the first time we've seen it happen, first time we've seen it happen in the promised land, in Canaan. But the text tells us, and I think it's important that we stop here and give some focus. The text tells us that the children of Israel, the children of Israel committed this trespass. The text tells us that Achan took, but the children of Israel were guilty. One man's sin makes the whole nation guilty. In fact, the text told us that the anger, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel for the sin of one man. Students of Scripture struggle with this. Even more so us in 2022 because of our very individualistic Western culture. Those in our church that come from some kind of an Eastern cultural background would get the view, they would get the view of how their sin impacts their community. We in our Western culture make our lives solely about us and so our sin is our business. But that's not how Scripture teaches it. We have to understand here the organic unity of the nation of Israel. They were then, they were then as Christians are now, they were the people of God, the church of the living God, and this one single member of the community violated the laws which God imposed on them, and the whole body was now liable for Achan's sin until it purged itself from a public, by a public act of restitution. This is not new to the Old Testament. Moses gave a law in Deuteronomy 21 about an unsolved homicide that takes place where the body is found outside of a city. It's out in a field. And the Israelites are instructed that the leaders of the closest city, if they didn't know who who committed this homicide, they were to take a female cow, they were to behead the cow, 
and they were to wash their hands over this beheaded cow, and then they were to say these words according to Moses. Notice in Deuteronomy 21, this is speaking of the, the unified view of sin. In verse 7, they said, And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood. Our hands have not shed this blood. Neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge. And the blood shall be forgiven them. The nation of Israel didn't commit the murder. They didn't commit the homicide. But we don't know who did it. And so the payment here was to pay for the whole for the sin of one. In like manner, the Apostle Paul regards the Corinthian church as polluted. The Apostle Paul regards the Corinthian church as polluted by the presence of one single unrepentant offender. He's polluted until, because of his unrepentance, he was expelled from the communion of the church. Paul had pointed this out. Paul had said, this man is guilty. He had condemned the sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said this in verse number 1. I won't read all this for time, but he said, It is reported commonly, commonly, that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as it not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. It's a vile sin. Vile sin. Down into verse 5, he said, To deliver such an one unto Satan for the, for the destruction of the flesh, and the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as your unleavened, even for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now, the whole point of this is for me to help you to understand that when God, when God saw the sin of Achan, the whole nation of Israel was then held guilty. Guilty. We would refer to this, and it's not a phrase you probably hear much, but it's a phrase, it's an older phrase, it's called body politic. Body politic is applied to a state, it applied to a state uh, implies the idea that of a connection so intimate between the members of a community that the, listen, the act of one affects the whole. The act of one affects the whole. A well-known ancient body example of body politic appears in a, a fable that's attributed to Aesop. It's called the belly and the members. In the fable, the other members of the body revolt against the belly, which they think is doing none of the work while getting all of the food. The hands, the mouth, the teeth, and legs initiate a strike. But after a few days, they realize that they are weak and ailing. Thus they learn that cooperation between all members of the body, cooperation between all members of the body, including the invisible belly, is vital for the body's health. And the moral here, the not-so-subtle moral, is that society, like a body, functions better when all do their assigned tasks and work together. Now, the point of this is, if this is to be admitted as the case in ordinary societies, then how much more is this important within the people of God who are under God's special protection and have been set apart to His service? How much more? In the history of Achan, we read the history of 
secret sin, which although it's not seen by the earthly eye, does nevertheless pollute the offender and, and the body. For us, the offender pollutes the church of the living God until there's an act of repentance and restitution towards God. Now, this is a lot. But I, I, I bring it to you this morning because I think this is a necessary biblical theme, which we try to present to you regular biblical themes. This is a theme that, listen very carefully, it causes all of us, or should I say, it should cause all of us to understand the effects of our sin on our family, on our church. And yes, even the sin that nobody knows about. It might be unseen from the eye, but the sin that besets us, the sin that we regularly entertain is affecting not only your marriage, but your family and your church family. We need a renewed visibility of the communal effects of sin. The communal effects of sin. It's so serious that the passage says this regarding Achan's sin. In verse number 1, let me remind you. After it was told us that Achan sinned, verse 1 says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. They didn't know about it. They didn't know about it. Joshua didn't know about this. Why is Joshua guilty? Because the scripture is pointing us to the fact that we need to remember that your sin does never just affect you. And I want to ask you this morning, and that's why I told you this is good for our soul. It may not entertain your spirit, it may not make you laugh a lot, but it's good for your soul to ask yourself this question. What unrepentant sin is injuring you and your relationship with the Lord? What unrepentant sin is hurting your family? What secret sin is hurting your church family? We have to be honest about this. It's good for our soul. But then we go further. That's one verse. That's one verse that pushes in quite a bit to us. But then flowing out of verse 1, we come to verses 2 all the way through verse 5. And it shows us the embarrassing loss at Ai. The embarrassing loss at Ai. Look at verse number 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Haven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai. And make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. With Jericho in the rearview mirror, Joshua does something he's already done once, and it worked well, right? He sends men to spy out the next city. He sends men to spy out the next city. It's called Ai. It literally, in Hebrew, the word Ai means a ruins. That's it. That's the name. That's the name. That's what Joshua said. I want you to go up and spy out the ruins. Where is this place? We actually don't know. It's just a pile of ruins. Probably what happened was it's a lot of places like this. And so we get the description of where this place of ruins is. But probably what happened here is there was a, a, a place of ruins that these people had built a city on. And so we get the description of this place of ruins. It's by 
It's by Beth Haven, and it's on the east side of Bethel. So it's a specific place. And I want to put a map up here for you that might help you a little bit uh, with this. Here is Jericho right there. And uh, here is Ai. Remember, I t- remember what the text said. It's to the, it's to the east of Bethel, which is right there. And it's next to Beth Haven, probably in that area right there. And so there is Ai. Keep that up there, if you will, uh, for just a moment. Let me talk to you about Ai. Ai is about 15 miles from Jericho. You see Jericho again? Right there, there's Ai. So about 15 miles. The big thing about Ai that we have to understand is Jericho is 800, 800 feet below sea level, and Ai is 2,500 feet above sea level. So there's a significant difference from Jericho, 800 feet below sea level, up to Ai, which is 2,500 feet above sea level. So getting to Ai was a rigorous climb, a rigorous climb. Now, the Bible tells us in chapter 8, verse 25, that there's 12,000 people in Ai. They probably had a military no larger than, if you do the math and separate children and women, there'd probably been about 3,000 people, 3,000 men that were part of their military. But the truth is, what we don't often recognize is that AI probably had an advantage if militaries were equal because of the altitude, because you had to climb up to AI. And so the people of AI had the opportunity to fight down and push them down the mountain. And so these spies that Joshua sets apart, they go to AI, they view it. They don't seem all that impressed with the size of the city. I mean, clearly it's nothing like Jericho. So they come back and they bring word to Joshua. What do they tell them? Joshua, we don't need to take all the men. We don't need to take all the men. Let's take a couple thousand, maybe three. Look at verse 4. So there went up thither of the people about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them, about 30 and 6 men. For they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Joshua sends the larger number that was recommended by the spies, which was 3,000. Seems so small with what we know about Israel, because... Joshua chapter 4 told us there was about 40,000 men that were prepared for battle. When they crossed the Jordan River, about 40,000 Israelite men prepared for battle. So the spies tell them, tell Joshua, we should just take two or 3,000. When you got a military of 40,000, why are you sending 3,000, right? But the men of Israel, the 3,000, go to Ai. They march up the mountain, 15 miles from Jericho, and there it is that they get smacked in a humiliating fashion. 36 men died, which seems small in number, but we get the sense that nobody died from Ai. And the people of Israel, the men of Israel, had to flee. The last line is similar there, of verse number 5. It's similar to what Rahab described, the Canaanites' fears of Israel, that their hearts of the people melted and became as water. It was... Once the Canaanites, whose hearts feared and became like water, and now it's the Israelites. So what's going on? How does this happen after Jericho? Well, I will tell you. I will tell you, and I hesitate to say these things, but it's important to the context. What is missing from this chapter, 
It stands out in its very absence. That nothing is stated here about Joshua seeking guidance from the Lord. Nothing about Israel seeking guidance from the Lord. And it's any wonder to us that the only reference to God in these five, chapter, five verses was what we heard in verse number one. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. From there, there is no more reference to the Lord. No reference. It's almost like the positive statement of chapter 6 and verse 27. The last statement was this in chapter 6 we saw last week. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noised throughout all the country. It might be that what seemed so awesome last week about the fame of Joshua is actually created a presumption in Israel's heart. A sense of we can't lose. We're unbeatable. Who needs God when you're unbeatable? It's like the child who learns to ride a bike and thinks they have it all figured out and so the parent steps back only to watch that child try to take off down the sidewalk and crash. This is what you see here. This is what you see from the people of Israel. And so the whole passage is negative in context. You've got a man who took of the accursed thing and the whole nation of Israel is guilty. You've got the people of Israel going to fight a battle. (laughs) And in fighting that battle, they lose. There's no reference to the Lord. So let's stop for a moment and let's take note of these two issues that played out in this text. Let's see what they reveal to us about God and about ourselves and how they take us to to be deeply rooted in Christ. Number one, I want you to see this in application. Overconfidence is misplaced faith. Overconfidence is misplaced faith. We are totally dependent on God when situations are difficult and when they are ordinary. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Jericho seems so difficult. Remember? Nobody's going out. Nobody's coming in. The difficulty of Jericho for Israel was a reminder at how much they needed God. How much they needed God. Ai seems so ordinary. So the people of Israel are good. Even though in this moment we get no sign, we get no sign in this text. I'm not trying to imply an arrogance. There's not an unchecked arrogance. I don't get a sense of of necessarily the pride of the people. We don't find in this that Joshua's saying, I don't need God. But there is an absolute appearance of failing to lean on the Lord for divine aid. It's similar to us at times, actually. And I mean this with no shame towards us, but just being honest about the human heart, it's that we need God in those difficult seasons. We need God in the health crisis. We need God in the job crisis. We needed God in the financial burdens. We needed God when there was relational stress, right? I mean, we ran to God in prayer. We ran to others and asked for prayer. We really, really needed God with the Jericho-type moments of life. But then, but then when we go to the ordinary moments, the, 
the, the Mondays of work, the Tuesdays of work, the life is normal, the health is fine, the financial burdens aren't there, the relationships seem to be going well, life is good, the ordinary moments. We're all guilty of neglecting to run to God for divine aid. And the truth is, our confidence in ourselves is misplaced faith. It's misplaced faith. I'm not here to shatter your confidence. I'm not here to make you insecure. I am here to encourage you to find all of your confidence in the Lord. That your dependency on God is not just for the hard things of life. Your dependency on God is for all things in life. The writer, of he, the writer of Proverbs, excuse me, reminds us in very direct words. I bet Joshua wishes he had these. And somebody reciting these to these. I learned these as a kid growing up in, in church. You may have too. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. You see, there's a direct relation here to the sin of Achan, the sin of the people, the guiltiness of the people, and the neglect for God. The neglect of God. It's a connection. I want to encourage you today, as I've been trying to encourage myself, and I encourage myself again this morning, let us not try to be too smart for God, because that would be ignorant. Let us not try to be too big for God. That would be juvenile. Let us not try to be too wise for God because that would be foolish. That would be foolish. But instead, let us lean on God. There is no shame in walking in total dependence on God. Lean on Him. By His grace, be dependent on Him. We are dependent on Him, listen, for the very breath that we take. Ready? Right now. The breath that you just took, you are dependent on God for that breath. Can I just say to you, there's never a moment of your life when you do not stand in total dependence on God. Let us not be people who simply run to him at Jericho and neglect him at Ai. Number two, we need to be keenly aware of the exceeding sinfulness and destruction of sin. We need to be keenly aware of the exceeding sinfulness and destruction of sin. I, I would tell you that this is one of those things that you probably learned in your earliest moments of church life. Right? Sin is bad. I'm afraid that we minimize our view of sin. We minimize it. We even make it ours, only affecting us. Let me remind you, Scripture has no place of that. The sin of a husband affects his wife. The sin of a wife affects the husband. The sin of a couple affects the children. The sin of a person affects the body of Christ. We need a reclamation of seeing the reality of sin and idolatry. 
only two precepts had been issued when the people of God attacked Jericho. One was to spare Rahab and her family, and another was to keep from the accursed thing. And listen, the latter of the two was broken. The command was not vague. Nobody's sitting there going, is this accursed? I don't know. Take it. Find out. Nobody's doing that. It wasn't vague. They all knew. It was unmistakable what God's command was. And, and Scripture tells us, points to us, this fact about sin. Listen, sin disobeys God's commandment. Sin disobeys God's commandment. 1 John chapter 3 said, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. Sin disobeys God's commandment. There is no vagueness about what God commands in Scripture. The only way you would never know is if you were absent from Scripture. But sin is clearly laid out in Scripture, and we need to be keenly aware that when we disobey God's commandment, there's an exceeding depravity and, and destruction to sin. That God's commandments are good. Number two, sin is usually accompanied by secrecy. It's accompanied by secrecy. Achan did not put the accursed thing on. He didn't wave it on the flagpole outside of his tent. He hid it. As we'll see next week, he hid it in the ground. Because the attempt to cloak sin may arise, and it will arise in our hearts, to cover it because the feeling of shame or the fear of detection or punishment. But hear me. If you're tempted to keep it secret, you should avoid it. If you're tempted to clear the browser, you should avoid it. If you're tempted to keep it between you and the Lord, because you don't want anybody to know, you should avoid it. It's destructive. It'll ruin your home. It'll ruin your marriage. It'll ruin the church. And I want to plead with our church to see the destruction of sin. See it. It doesn't just affect you. That's pride. Number three. Sin comes out of covetous desires. Achan saw. He saw it. He coveted it. And he took it, as we're going to see next week. But I will tackle this point. But I do want you to see that, listen, seeing was innocent. There's nothing wrong with seeing it. Dwelling on the object he coveted, that he saw with desire to have it, that was sinful. So it comes out of covetous desires. Do you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve coveted a tree to be desired to make one wise? Can I just tell you the final commandment of the ten, thou shalt not covet, is necessary for our understanding of what we look at, we will desire. And when we desire and linger on it and we pursue it, that sin is destructive. James 1 spoke of this when he said, When lust have conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Well, let me talk to you very candidly about something very quickly, because I, I could sit here today and I could plead with you to run, 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 run from sin. I could talk to you about being careful, listen, being careful what you put before your eyes. I could talk to you about that. 
I could plead with you parents to be mindful of what goes on your television. I could plead with you parents to consider not giving your teenager a smartphone. I could do that all day long. And you'd be offended probably or think that you know better. It's fine. I will tell you that we have lost our awareness of sin. It's so accessible and it's so easy to be covered in our day, so we think. But I need you to understand something here. The outward object, the outward object has no power to make us fall except it corresponds to an inward affection. Listen very carefully. The sin is what it is. We, we have to remember that it cannot, the outward object cannot bring us to sin unless it connects to an inward affection. I gaze on the object, the affection is stirred, I want it, I need it, I gotta have it. Stay with me. This is so important to to understanding how we expel sin in our life. Gaze on the object, the affections are stirred, the desire produces a sinful action. How do we deal with this? Because I don't want to be the pastor who just tells you that sin is destructive and sin is destructive. I want to tell you how you can deal with this in your life. So listen very carefully. If in six years you've got anything, get this. Is the answer for us to just avoid anything that may lead us to sin? You'd have to walk around with your eyes closed and your head in the sand. It's just not possible. Parents, no matter how much you try, you can't keep your kids from the reality of sin. So what do we need to do? The better option, the best option, is to fill our hearts with the desire for something better and more satisfying. When it comes to sin, there might be merit to saying, don't look at that, don't don't entertain it, don't think about it, don't meditate on it. There's a merit for that. But the best option is to fill your heart and your life with a desire for something better. That's it. There's got to be something better. The Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers in his book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Every Christian should read that book. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection tells us, listen, that being afraid of sin is not sufficient. Being afraid of sin is not sufficient. We must be moved by a greater affection. And you know this. The answer answer is not always avoid men, what we look at. We can't always avoid something that entertains. The answer is or something that draws us, something that would bring out lust. The answer is to love your wife more than that thing. Right? Is any man with me this morning? The answer is to love someone else more. So when it comes to sin, when it comes to sin, the answer is to have a greater affection that can dominate that sin, that is able to defeat that sin. And so Chalmers says this. The words are on the screen. You can follow along with us. 
The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good, to expel the love of what is evil. I'd build on that, and I would say this, because that's an old Puritan language right there. The pure goodness of the gospel, expressed by God the Holy Spirit, in the life of the Christian, is the only effectual means of expelling sin from our life. That's it. There's only one thing greater that must fill the life of the Christian, and that is the gospel. That's it. I've jokingly said to this church, Bob Sontag has gotten a kick out of it when I've said it, I am absolutely a graceaholic. I am absolutely, absolutely addicted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the only means of expelling sin in the life of the Christian. Your try harder will fail. It will fail. There's only one way to fill your life with the gospel. So I plead with you this morning to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. See it as destructive. See it leading to death. But I plead with you as well to see the extravagant love, mercy, and grace of God in Christ. That is better. So instead of living afraid of sin, live in love with Jesus. And how do I build that love? If that's the remedy to love the gospel and to love Christ more than sin, then I must bathe in the word. I must meditate on the gospel. I must think on scripture. I must do that which stirs up love in my heart for Jesus. I must. Everything else is failing. It's failing. Let me take this. Forgive me because i gotta, I got to land here. I could talk about this all day long. The third thing I want you to see today, and this is where we tie the whole of Scripture, okay, from beginning to end. This is what we call redemptive thread, redemptive story. Number three, the sin of one man, Achan, meant defeat for the nation of Israel. The righteousness of one man, Jesus, means victory for the church. The sin of one is defeat for Israel. The the righteousness of one is victory for the church. And in the beginning of Scripture, listen, in the beginning of Scripture, it's one man's sin that's the cause of death for the whole world. That one is Adam. We read it earlier. Romans 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The good news of the Christian gospel is there's another man. There's another man because if we were all left under Adam, we'd all die in sin. If we were all left under Adam, you would be hopeless and so would I. The grips of sin would hold you tightly. So one comes. Look at Romans 5 verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. This is the gospel. This is what you must meditate on. To expel sin. It's your sin. It is your sin that puts Christ on the cross. It's your disobedience. It's the sin of one that is the death 
of all. The good news of the gospel is it's the righteousness of one that gives all life. And if you don't preach that to yourself, you will live in a perpetual state of idolatry. That's it. We are trying to figure out how to stop sinning. The goal of the Christian life, listen, is not to stop sinning. The goal of the Christian life is to fall deeper in love with Jesus. Because only that new affection for Christ can expel sin. Are you with me? When you love Jesus, you will despise your sin. That's the scriptural message. You and I are stuck and have no hope to save ourselves. We were caught, we were caught like Achan with the accursed thing. We violated God and sinned against him. But God sends Jesus to die for us. How undeserving we were. How undeserving we are. You say, Pastor, I, w- I want to preach that gospel to myself. And the truth is, you will always listen to some form of a gospel. It, it might be a try-harder gospel. It might be a psycho-babble gospel. It might be a New Age gospel. It might be a political gospel. You are always listening to some kind of a gospel message. Let me remind you what Paul said in Galatians 1. It, there is no other gospel, though. There is no other good news. You and I need to see in this passage both the defeat of Achan, the defeat of Achan, the sinfulness of Achan. We're going to see it more next week. We have to be honest about sin. Sometimes we think, well, if we talk about grace, then sin doesn't matter. No, no, no. No. Absolutely, the truth of the gospel will give you a greater distaste for sin because you see what it does to Jesus. And you see what it does to your wife. And you see what it does to your husband. And you see what it does to your family. And you see what it does to your church. And the only remedy is Jesus. It's the only remedy. So do I run from sin this week? Do I run from sin? Yes. But ultimately, I run to Christ. I run to Christ. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.